You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 536 of this podcast. Today is January 12th, 2023. And in this episode, we're going to be covering uh, a few things that are <laughs> maybe uh, liable to get the blood up and uh, get you, you know, maybe thinking differently and also um, hopefully not offended, but possibly. You might be offended by some of what I say in this podcast episode. And uh, I guess now that I've said that, what else is new? I, I'm not really telling you something uh, new if you've been listening to this podcast. My intention is not to offend. Uh, just to be very clear, my intention is not to offend. When the Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the church at Corinth in the New Testament, he tells them what love does and does not do, what love is and what love is not. And among other things, he says that love is not rude. And I interpret rudeness there as being needlessly offensive. Sometimes being offensive is for a good cause, but other times when it's just unnecessary, it's gratuitous, you're intentionally causing other people discomfort and unsettling them to no good end. We call that rudeness. And it's not quite necessarily the same thing as sinning against them, perhaps, but then why are you doing it, right? What is the end goal? The end goal might be to get a rise out of them, to get them upset, to get them angry, to provoke them into something that is going to be wrong for them to do. In which case, I would say that is wicked. That's a wicked motivation. Why would we do that? But my intention, I hope, I pray, is not to be needlessly offensive, not to be needlessly unsettling, not to be rude, but rather to be intentional. And I do want to be thought-provoking. I want to encourage you to think deeply and broadly on a broad range of uh, subjects. And in each individual subject, I want you to think deeply because there's too much, there's too much information at our fingertips these days for us to not be able to make sense of the information and to not be able to filter and sift. Not all the information that we have coming to us in every direction all day, every day is accurate, or even if it is accurate, uh, very often the conclusions drawn from the facts presented do not support the premises. And therefore, thinking rightly can protect you for one thing, from coming to the wrong conclusion and either uh, being vulnerable to things that are going to hurt you, to making bad decisions that are going to harm you, that are not going to be in your self-interest, they're not going to be beneficial to your neighbor or your family, they're not going to honor God. So we don't want that. We also don't want you to miss out on opportunity. So sometimes people will put out information, they'll come to the wrong conclusions and they will miss out on opportunity because they did not understand the facts. They didn't know how to make the connection between the details that they knew, the, the facts and the evidence that they had at their disposal, 
And so they miss out, right? They miss out. They come to the wrong conclusion and they wave off something that actually would have been very beneficial to them. So we don't want that. You've got to look at the information that is coming to you. You just can't help it. You've got to hear what's being said. You've got to see what's being shown. But you've also got to understand rightly. And we read this phrase in the Bible about having ears but not hearing, having eyes but not seeing, or let him who has ears hear, or let him who has eyes see. We see that kind of a phrase being presented and put forward. And it's like the difference between my children hearing and listening. And that is, they might have heard the sound of me talking, but if they were distracted playing with something or looking off or daydreaming, they maybe didn't actually catch a word of it. And there was no comprehension. There was no understanding. So we have to understand there's a difference between hearing and listening or hearing and understanding and perceiving. So also there's a difference between seeing. You know, you can have all sorts of objects in your peripheral vision that you're not focused on per se, and you're not really seeing them. And I here uh, recall when my wife and I, now wife, not at the time she wasn't, uh, Lauren, when we were just friends who would walk around town, walk up and down the sidewalk in Hillsboro, Ohio in high school, I saw her very differently one particular afternoon, early evening, when I brought her back to her house, her parents' house. And we were sitting on the front steps, on the porch steps, and I looked at her and actually saw her, right? I, I looked at her face and actually saw her instead of, you know, the, the childish Garrett before that point kind of just noticing in a, in a very casual, superficial way, oh, yes, you know, there's Lauren and I recognize her. And yeah, there's lots of people and there's lots of things going on. And, you know, sure, right? That's Lauren, of course. And then one evening, I remember this distinctly. We had been talking about whether we should start answering differently when people ask us, are you two dating? Are you, are you guys going out? And we, because we were getting that question and we were answering in the negative. No, we're, we're not dating. We're just friends. But we're just friends who enjoy talking with each other. And we enjoy walking around and, and having conversation and discussing life. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it was a decision to make. We are getting so many questions. And she also had developed an interest in me. I had had an interest in her. And then uh, I, I missed out. You know, a friend of mine had asked her out before I did the very same day, actually, and she had agreed to go out with him. And so I missed my opportunity or so it seemed. And then they dated for several months and it didn't work out and they broke it off. And she and I were still friends. And I, by that point, you know, when she had broken up with uh, her previous boyfriend and my friend, uh, I had kind of moved on or settled into a contentment that, all right, you know, she's just not, she's not interested and she's not available. And I want to focus my attentions on what does the Lord want me to do? 
you know, I'm in my senior year of high school, I'm thinking forward towards either college or getting a job. And what do I want to pursue as far as a professional uh, uh, career? And what is God's calling? Is God calling me to do something or another? Lots of people are asking me, are you going to go to seminary? Have you thought about becoming a pastor? And I said, well, you know, I'd, <laughs> not nothing against pastors and nothing against ministers or nothing necessarily against seminary in general, uh, although I do have something against uh, most seminaries, at least judging by uh, their outputs. But my pushback was, well, you know, for one, it, just because I'm talking about the Bible and I'm talking about the Christian faith and I'm trying to talk about and study apologetics, you know, that why does that necessarily mean that I need to be a pastor? It, or, you know, is that the only outlet for a Christian man that he would enter into full-time vocational ministry, that he would be a pastor? Can't he just be serving the Lord without being a pastor, without going to seminary? And and besides that, at the time, I didn't have a strong uh, sense that that's what God was calling me to do, or that that's where God was calling me to go. But then I didn't have much of a sense uh, generally where God wanted me to go and where God wanted me to, uh, or was leading me to, or um, had convicted me to uh, apply my energies and my attentions. And so I was waiting, right? I, that That's the best description I can give for the mindset that I was in. I was waiting on the Lord and believing that if I did wait, that the Lord would make clear to me what I should be about and what I should do. And I got you know some flack for that. And I got some pushback within my family and friends uh, circle. Some were very encouraging and said, oh, that's, that's great. That's exactly right. That's very biblical and very mature of you. And you know, we'll pray for you in that regard. And then others just really did not uh, appreciate the sentiment, and they thought that it was, uh, you know, maybe a, a little bit of Pentecostal charismatic type, uh, you know, putting out a fleece uh, sort of silliness as they saw it. But as I was waiting, I also was resolved to be content, and that was, I think, the the other way I could describe where my mindset was at at the time. On the one hand, I wanted to wait on the Lord with regards to career, vocation, professional life, education. But on the other hand, I was resolved to be content with regards to, uh, you know, if I was going to go out with anybody, if I was going to ask a girl out or date or what have you, i had had one girlfriend to that point. And, you know, it was fun, I suppose. And then it stopped being fun because it just wasn't a good uh, compatibility between the two of us. Our personalities, our interests, our friends, I think we're a little bit, um, shall we say, obnoxious to one another. And so we, you know, didn't work out. And then I'm just thinking, okay, I, I want to be content. And I am sure that when the Lord has uh, a young lady for me, if the Lord wills for me to uh, have a, a young lady to wed at some point, that will become clear. And so Lauren and I were friends, and, and I'm, I mean that. Uh, a lot of people probably grinned and you know shook their heads, like uh, "Sure you are," but we really were. We were just friends. Uh, you know, we would go on long walks, 
And uh, you know, honestly, I, I didn't think anything of it, except I really appreciate Lauren. I really appreciate that I can have conversations with her that are meaningful, that are uh, you know far uh, reaching, that are broadly uh, topiced about life and about being intentional about life. I appreciated her perspective and her being uh, you know soft spoken for one, but also being succinct where I'm not always very succinct and it it worked well that we were friends and then one evening you know we're talking and walking and I escort her back to her house and we're sitting on her front porch and she needs to go in and put something away or get something and I'm sitting there on the front porch and just saying a quick prayer in my head to the Lord about the situation and all I can say, and I don't even quite know what the proper way to describe these things is or what would be acceptable to a broad range of people, but but all I can think to uh, explain it by saying is that I had this strong conviction that the Lord's answer to my prayer was, when she comes back out, just be quiet. And lo and behold, Lauren comes back out. And unusual for me, I was just quiet and I'm sitting there and I'm just listening. And she's not saying much because she's, you know, typically, uh, you know, more soft-spoken and doesn't need to be talking all the time, (laughs) which is, I think, you know, part of why she liked me or enjoyed or appreciated me. It wasn't that she talks all the time. So she likes that about me that I talk all the time. It's that she doesn't like to talk all the time. And so she liked me talking so that it would give her, you know, a little bit of cover, if you will, for not having to talk so much. And so I'm sitting there and it's just quiet and the moon is coming up and she's like, what? And it just struck me uh, all of a sudden that, wow, you are, you are really beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know why I haven't seen it before. I just, I, you were really beautiful. I, I, yeah, I just, I, I don't know how I was missing it. And all of this is to say, right? All of this is to say that that can be true in every area of life, that we can be in such a hurry. We can be so busy. We can get tunnel vision on what we want to do, what we want to say, where we want to go, what we want to have, that we miss the beauty of what God has put in front of us already and where we're at right now, and what we have right now. And I think that's the mystery of contentment. I think that's why the scriptures say that godliness with contentment is great gain. If we resolve to be content in all circumstances and learn that, there's a great deal of peace that we can have, and joy, and safety, and we can be blessed. And we can see opportunity in a way that's just not possible if we get tunnel vision as is too often the case. I know it is for me, and I now recognize it in other people as well. But all that is to say, we have also in the scripture a description of this or a phrase that's used that occurs various times that gets at this fact that we are this way. Jesus says, for instance, Matthew eleven fifteen, in the ESV, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Also, Matthew 13, 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous 
will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Mark 4, 9. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 4, 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All this is to say, you can have ears that sound is coming into, but you're not perceiving because you're not paying attention. And sometimes, sometimes we can derive a great deal of benefit from attending to that and being intentional about what we hear and what we perceive, listening closely. So all of that said, all of that for preface, I go back to my assurance that I don't mean to be rude. If I bring up certain things or I draw them out that are uncomfortable, surprising, unsettling, I do not mean to be rude. I am not trying to alarm you, but rather in a certain in a certain sense, <laughs> I am saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. And I think that you will be benefited by that. But let's talk about morality, shall we? What is morality? And by extension, what is immorality? I think that the phrase very common in our day that you can't legislate morality is not true, as I've said many times. I believe that's uh, actually quite the opposite. You can't not legislate morality. Anytime you make a law or try to enforce it or try to interpret it, you are engaging in a moral exercise. And whether that morality is reliable, accurate, true, actually moral, that is debatable. That's a separate issue. But a claim is being made, and that claim is either true or it's not. And we can know. That's the position of the Christian faith. That's the position of the follower of Jesus. It has to be the position of the follower of Jesus that we can know whether a thing is moral or it's not. And there's a few ways we can know whether a thing is moral or it's not. One of the ways is if God explicitly says, thou shalt, you will. That's contractual language. (laughs) Black and white, do it. Or inversely, thou shalt not, do not, don't. That's a command. That's language to do with authority. And if you don't listen to it, if you don't obey it, you are making a statement, even just by your actions. It's like sign language. If you don't, when God says do, or you do, when God says don't, you are claiming by your choices to actually be more of an authority over yourself than God is. And that's a dangerous claim. That at root is the dangerous claim. That is pride. But what is morality? I looked it up and Oxford languages, by way of Google, has this for a definition. And I quote, principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So morality is principles, according to Oxford languages, principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Now, it gets a little murky once you get into principles, because that's another way we can know right from wrong. One way is if God says, 
explicitly, do this. Don't do that. Okay, I know what God said to do is right, and I know what God said to not do is wrong. But then we can extend out. If we see a pattern in what God tells us to not do and in what God tells us to do, we can derive principles, as we say. Now, what's a principle? Well, I'm glad you asked. Also, from Oxford Languages, and I quote, a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. That's the first definition. And their example is, and I quote, the basic principles of Christianity. Their second definition is a general scientific theorem or law that has numerous special applications across a wide field. And let me tell you, it is not for no reason that these two definitions are side by side right here. The second definition flows from the first, as we understand it, a scientific theorem or law, even the fact that we see the universe and we assume an order to it, that we do science expecting a benefit or to be able to curtail deleterious, harmful, undesirable causes, effects. That comes from the basic principles of Christianity, I would argue, and I do argue. But moving on, the basic principles of Christianity or, if you will, morality, right and wrong. When it comes to thou shalt and thou shalt not, if God says, well, then we know. If man says, well, we also know from God's word that sometimes man contradicts God. Sometimes man in authority or trying to make a claim of authority contradicts God, not just in his own conduct, but also in what he asks or requires or demands of his fellow man. For instance, in the book of Daniel, when the youths are told to bow down and worship the golden statue of the king, when the bell chimes, they disobey. Why? Because it would not be right. It would be wrong for them to obey him. Generally, in other circumstances, it's right for them to obey the king as he is the one in authority. In this circumstance, it would be wrong because God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God said he's a jealous God and don't worship any other gods in front of him. Before him, that's not speaking chronologically or in terms of prioritization. That's speaking in terms of his seeing us. He sees us at all times. And if you will, he doesn't want to see us worshiping some other God. And so they disobey because the king's command is immoral, although the king would claim that he gets to decide what is moral. What is it that the youths say? O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Why? Because they fear God more than they fear the king, which is also a statement being made in terms of who has more power in our estimation, who we love more, who we are more afraid of, who we regard as having greater authority. Daniel as well. He has a very similar problem when a edict is handed down 
with the help of lobbyists who are his peers. And this, if you if you want a picture <clears throat> of how corporations work together with lawmakers that they donate to the campaigns of to get legislation that regulates their own industries so that they come out on top, so that they have the competitive advantage, so that their rival corporations are tripped up and have to operate behind the eight ball, look no further than Daniel's jealous rivals in the court of Babylon going to the king and proposing that he make a edict, announce a law that for 30 days, no one is allowed to pray to any god except the king, which is to say that the king is a god. They lobby for this because they don't want to outwork Daniel. They can't match him for excellence. They've got to find a way to sabotage him. And the king, not catching the trap, liking Daniel very much, but not perceiving, hearing but not perceiving their designs, says, yeah, it's a great idea. They flatter him, of course. He says, yeah, that's a great idea. Make it so. So let it be written so that it be done. And so it is. And Daniel hears of it. It immediately goes home and closes the door. Or does he? Or does he open the door facing Jerusalem and pray to his God? And of course, his rivals were watching, waiting, expecting, and they spring the trap. And they go tell the king. And the king knows. The king knows he's just been played. And nevertheless, Daniel has to be thrown to the lions. The king very much regrets it, but he can't go back because that would be a statement. Just like it's a statement when we obey men rather than God, it's also a statement if men give a command and then rescind it, it speaks to potentially weakness in the world's way of looking at such things. It speaks to uncertainty. It will plant doubts in the minds of those who otherwise were blindly following. And then the whole thing starts to unravel. Next thing you know, you've got a palace coup and some other guy's king, and you're being buried in a ditch when you were just in the palace. So Daniel is thrown to the lions, and God sends an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. All of this is to say that morality is a debate. It's an arm wrestling contest. It's not possible to avoid making a claim on right and wrong. If we say that there is some sphere of life where morality does not come into our considerations, should not come into our considerations, then in that place we are saying there is no law. We are lawless. And in that case, we're not under grace, actually, because God... <laughs> God gave the law. The law was good. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle. So think, not one I will be missing its dot. Not one T will be uncrossed. Every detail of the law will be fulfilled. And furthermore, Jesus contrasts what will be said to those who believe and obey and follow him and trust in him, what will be said is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. But to others, even those who think they are Christians, they will get a very different answer. 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquity. I never knew you. Consider Psalm 1. The Psalms are prayers or songs in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh. On it, he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 continues on to say that in everything he does, he prospers. Why is that? Because God's law applies to everything that he does. It gives him wisdom. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because it applies to everything that the man does. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water. He is blessed. And the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. They will not persist. They will not continue on in the land. So this question of morality is really important. Now, speaking of morality and speaking of consulting Oxford languages by way of Google to ask, what is morality? What is a principle? My cousin Micah Hirschberger sent me a video this week from a YouTube channel called How It Happened. Uh, The video is four weeks old at this point, and the title of it is What is Chat GPT? OpenAI's Chat GPT Explained. I won't tell you the whole thing. It's nine minutes, 16 seconds. Um, But just to summarize, right, uh, I'll throw a link in the description for this podcast episode. Do go check it out. This is fascinating stuff that we are just about to transition to. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. But we have turned Google into a verb. Someone asks you a question, for instance, how to define morality, or like my son asked last night, hey, dad, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? Hmm. That's a good question. What did I do? I Googled it because that's a verb now. Google is a company name, but using their search engine, which is so popular and so effective, we call it Googling. You're searching the internet. Well, chat GPT is maybe not going to be a intuitive uh, verb anytime soon. We'll see. But ChatGPT is essentially the next iteration of Googling. And if you didn't know, AI is getting uh, pretty uncanny these days. Work is being done on robots that have artificial intelligence. That's what AI stands for. And these robots are being designed and programmed and conceptualized to do anything that either we want them to do or anything that we don't want to do. (laughs) Both and. And Sometimes the two are the same, but not always. So these robots, in some sense, will be the perfect slaves to us. That's the idea. I mean, let's be real. That's the idea with wanting increasingly lifelike robots. And you might not know this. I work in automation and I have gotten offers from companies that have robots. I know that in many cases, uh, robots as we have them now in a functional, you know, productive, economical way are little more in most cases in you know, factory, industrial, manufacturing settings, little more than stationary articulating arms that have servos and rotors and hinges and things like that, hydraulics, 
and these arms are programmed to go through a certain path and a routine. And if you teach a robot to do a simple task, let's say on an assembly line in relation to timers and sensors and such like that, then you don't have to have a human being doing that repetitive work, which is good. You know, all the humans say, amen, because you don't want to have stress injuries. The robot can do that and it'll be cheaper. And it'll be, hopefully, if you, you know, program it right, it'll be more reliable. Well, AI is going into another stage of development or evolution right now, as we speak, where AI is writing text or generating art. So I've got an app on my phone right now, actually, and it's pretty cool. It, it really is pretty cool. It's called Wonder. And this app, Wonder... All you have to do is plug in a few keywords, and they could be any keywords whatsoever. They could be moon, robot, coffee mug. And then you tell the app, in this particular case, you tell the app what art style you would prefer, and then it does some thinking, it does some searching and some calculations, and some work on the inside, and then it spits out some AI generated art and some of it, you know, doesn't quite work. And it's, you know, it's, it's got some problems maybe like for some reason, when I was first trying it out, I was getting three legged everything. Uh, so I don't know what was up with that. Why, why three legs, except they were probably, you know, multiple images from different angles that got combined. And now there's three legs because, you know, it's like Siamese twins. The combination was not quite there. But it's remarkable to me. Some of the images that were created are, oh man, like phenomenal and AI generated. Now, what the AI is doing is it's scouring probably Google images and other such, probably sites like DeviantArt and Flickr, looking at photographs, looking at other people's man-made, hand-drawn works. And then combining images that could potentially work together. But that's art. You can also do this with text. And you can have a good bit of a paper written by going through and selecting. There's lots of websites that offer this. And some you have to pay for. And others will give you free samples. But AI-generated text, you can have the majority of a blog post already written just from AI. You plug in some keywords and some phrases and it's going to scour the internet. It's going to do hours and hours and hours worth of research for you. And then you will want to, from what I've seen, you will want to go through and edit to correct errors, but it'll be close. It'll be uncannily close, even with those errors. But if you watch this video and I would encourage you to, it's nine minutes, 16 seconds long. What is chat GPT? probably the most fascinating question they get into. And it comes up again and again when you read sci-fi, when you look at updates on various kinds of robots that are being worked on for defense, for instance, or law enforcement, for instance. The question of ethics comes up. The question of morality comes up. And when it comes to the question of morality, if you don't put morality into the robots, well then... They might do immoral things. 
or they may be used to do immoral things. And to that we might say, well, but is it possible? They're just robots. How can they do right or wrong? They're just a machine. And to that I would say, well, then the one who programs them actually is liable. We don't file a lawsuit against a car, for instance, but if somebody's driving the car and they commit a crime in that car, the charges are brought against the person driving the car. If it's a self-driving car and someone is hurt or killed because the self-driving car was not safe or it wasn't programmed correctly or it's not reliable, then a lawsuit or charges might be filed against the person who made that self-driving car or programmed it. So also with this, I would imagine. But they're already talking about trying to put some ethical and moral boundaries in to what you can and cannot have generative AI, chat GPT, answer for you. So you could ask in the future, right now it's in the preliminary stages, they're kind of beta testing it, but it's, I mean, it's coming up quick. Like before you know it, this will be everywhere and everyone will be using it. But certain questions that they don't want you asking chat GPT, or they don't want chat GPT answering for you. Basically, you'll ask these questions and chat GPT will just say, I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Like Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean. It means no. But then this goes back again to the question of, but how do we know, right? It's like legislating morality. You're putting laws of robotics in like Isaac Asimov. And how do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? How do you know what to tell this robot that it must not comply with? It must not answer. It must not generate. How do you know? On the one hand, we can derive principles from history, from tradition, from a pragmatic assessment of what we deem to be good for us. And I think in that case, watch out because lots of things have been justified apart from God when we don't think that God is looking and seeing and listening. I'll tell you somebody I don't want telling the chat GPT or the robots what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. I'll tell you who I don't want determining that for all of us. Virginia Kruta published a piece over at the Daily Wire a couple of days ago titled RNC Drops Comprehensive List of Biden's Whoppers, Fish Stories, and Fibs. And this might be red meat to some people. I, I don't lose sleep over it, but it bothers me that we have a commander-in-chief, we have a president who is such an egregious liar. <laughs> he's just, it's not that he's hyperbolic. Trump was hyperbolic, but genuine <clears throat> in a way. Biden is just a bald-faced liar. He's not exaggerating. He's just making stuff up. We're used to. Biden claimed, number one here from RNC Research, Biden claimed on multiple occasions he used to drive an 18-wheeler. Biden rode in an 18-wheeler once, nearly 50 years ago. He's never driven one. So, PolitiFact, false. Uh, number two, Biden claimed multiple times he spoke to the inventor of insulin. Multiple scientists are credited with discovering insulin two died before Biden was born, and there is no evidence Biden met the others. 
Number three, Biden claimed he had a house burned down with my wife in it and said they almost lost a couple firefighters. In 2005, Biden's house had a small fire that was contained to the kitchen and there were no injuries. Number four, Biden claimed he was raised in the Puerto Rican community of Delaware. There is no evidence of this, of course. In Delaware in 1970, only 2,154 people, 0.39% of the state population, were of Puerto Rican descent. Maybe they all lived in his neighborhood. Um, Maybe so. I don't know. Number five, Biden said he remembered spending time and going to the Tree of Life synagogue after the 2018 shooting. The synagogue said Biden never visited. Ouch. Number six, Biden claimed he served as a liaison to Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir during the Six-Day War. Biden was in law school during the war, and Meir wasn't even prime minister. Number seven, Biden claimed his first job offer came from Boise Cascade, an Idaho lumber company. The company said they have no record of President Biden's application or of him having worked for the company. Ouch. Number eight, Biden claimed the first time he got arrested was at a civil rights protest. There is no evidence Biden has ever been arrested, and he was not a civil rights activist. Number nine, Biden claimed that he had a conversation with an Amtrak conductor in 2012 or 2013 about traveling over 1 million miles on Air Force Two. The conductor retired in 1993, passed away in 2014, and Biden didn't reach 1 million miles on AF2 until 2015. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Is it possible? Is it possible? They talked about traveling over 1 million miles because he was going to be, like he was soon to be. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Not if the guy retired in 1993. Just saying. Number 10, and this is the last one I'll read for you. And I'm sorry, because these are just annoying more than they are anything. Biden claimed he was appointed to the Naval Academy in 1965. There is no record of Biden being nominated to the Naval Academy, and Biden graduated from the University of Delaware in 1965, making it impossible. Uh, why do I tell you those? Right? Why do I mention those? Why do I bring them up? A lot of us are just tuning this out. It's white noise, and it's a waste of time. And I say it's not a waste of time if it's relevant to who is going to be programming generative AI and how. It's not irrelevant. If the folks teaching the robots ethics and morality themselves are not honest, well, then they will teach the robots and the AI to be not honest along lines that agree with what they want us to think and believe. So you will ask generative AI a question. And if the generative AI is giving you a summary answer after having scoured the internet, watch out. Right? Watch out because it might be even more hard to spot the fake. I mean, that's another thing that generative AI is going to do and is able to do is generate deep fakes. So you could have a fake video of someone doing something, either doing something good that gets them unearned praise, like Biden lying about his accomplishments, his achievements. Oh, there's no evidence of that. Hey, generative AI, ChatGPT, give me a video of me <laughs> serving as liaison, the gold of my ear. So I've got evidence. Ooh. Also, too, on the flip side, generative AI could be used to create very convincing, scandalous stories, scandalous material, 
scandalous evidence or enough evidence to try and convict someone in the court of public opinion. You could use generative AI to make it look like somebody you don't like has done a very wicked, evil thing that they should be punished for. And here is where biblical principles come into play, because what is one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Hmm. Does that apply to generative AI and what it might be used to produce and for what purposes? Absolutely. Absolutely. In other news, moving on, speaking of people we don't want programming the ethics and morality of generative AI, Mayreed Elordi over at The Daily Wire published a piece also two days ago. Idaho school board meeting ends in chaos over gender policy. The meeting was shut down as frustrated parents spoke out. I'm going to play a little bit of the audio from this and... Maybe you'll be able to make out what's being said and you'll understand (laughs) a little bit better uh, than if I just told you. Take a listen. So before you waste taxpayer money, before you put a kid in harm's way, you better throw this policy out and not even consider. I've got the floor. (laughs) Ms. Pacino, will you please listen to me? Sir. Yeah, you claim you want people to follow the rules, but you break the rules left and right. Last month, you allowed two people All to right, speak. We will recess be in this meeting right now. Recess for 15 minutes. You do not get okay. to demand to follow the rules and break them yourself. We will recess for 15 minutes. I'm sorry. We have asked... You absolutely know the protocol. You're not following protocol yourself. Madam Chair, I move to adjourn. Okay, I have a motion to adjourn. Do I have a second? second. Okay, we have a second. Real fast, I'm going to Section 4201. The people of the state of Idaho and creating the instruments of their assets, do not yield the sovereignty sir, to the agency. Simon Paul, vote. This is who you listen okay. to. Okay, can you turn turn him off? Okay. So I would like to call the oh, members. Please say aye. Aye. Yay. Yay. Okay. All right, meeting has been adjourned. Meeting is adjourned. To say that that did not go smoothly is perhaps an understatement. Reading some of the further unpacking of what's going on that has these parents so upset from the reporting by Mayreed Elordi over at the Daily Wire. The Caldwell District's new gender policy would allow students to use the restrooms and locker rooms that correspond with their gender identity rather than their biological sex. School staff must conceal the student's new gender identity from parents unless the parent has already worked with the school on a plan for accommodating the student's gender identity, according to the policy. On overnight trips, transgender students may not be denied a sleeping room assignment 
based on their transgender status, the policy mandates. School staff must also use a student's preferred pronouns or be subject to discipline. A sixth grade girl spoke and simply said she did not want to change or use the restroom with boys. And I quote, I don't think that it's right for a boy who feels like he's a girl to change in the same room as the girls because it would make us all feel very uncomfortable changing with a boy. End quote. This is why the parents are upset. Three other students teamed up on remarks in favor of the gender policy, one of whom shares a last name with the school board chairwoman, which prompted a reaction from the crowd. Any relation, Piscina? One woman called out. Ma'am, this will be your first warning, Piscina responded, pointing at her. Another woman, further on down, called for the board to consult a committee of parents in drafting the gender policy. One particularly passionate woman told the board, and I quote, everybody is going to answer to God one day. You're not going to escape it, end quote. And this is why we homeschool. And I don't say that to be snide, but I do say that to underline the point that those who have eyes to see need look no further than the underlying premises and presuppositions inherent to American public education to know that this is consistent with American public education. This is not a bug as this school board sees it. This is a feature. If you disagree, it is not just the particulars. It's not just the details that you disagree on. It's the presupposition. And they're not going to let go of that presupposition. The American public schools either need to be drastically overhauled at the level of the fundamental presupposition, or they need to be abolished in favor of private schools and homeschools and get the U.S. government out of education entirely, get state governments out of education entirely, or C, abandon ship, get out, get your kids out, homeschool them. I don't have to go to school board meetings and yell at anyone. I don't have to cajole, persuade, or else try and figure out what to do with my feelings when I'm not being heard. Or when it turns out that what was said, what was committed to is not what was done, is not what is happening. They don't particularly care if you as a parent are uncomfortable or if your child is uncomfortable. The underlying presupposition, the core assumption to comprehensive sex education, which is the policy of our public schools, the core presupposition with regards to sexuality stems ultimately from the core presupposition with regards to our humanity, what our rights are and how we know and where they come from, basic questions of morality, right and wrong, principles of morality, principles of how you know what is right and wrong, on what basis, on what authority claims of right and wrong rest. The core presupposition that means they get to tune you out as a parent if you're uncomfortable or they get to tune your child out if your child is uncomfortable changing with or sharing a room at a hotel with someone of the opposite gender who also is either deranged or dishonest or both enough to say they're a boy when they're actually a girl or they're a girl, as is more often the case in our day when they're actually a boy. 
they don't care if that makes you uncomfortable because comprehensive sex education holds that children have a human right to their sexuality. And what's meant by that is to being sexual. They have a human right to sexual activity, sexual interest. You can say, well, that's sexual immorality. And I would say, wait a second, that's not sexual immorality if you reject what God says as having any bearing whatsoever on what is right and wrong. If you reject God's authority at the root, then you don't go back to God when it comes to sex. Even the parents who are saying, you need to consult with parents and bring them in on this, what the schools will say, what the Department of Education will say is, we'll just send these parents to re-education. As long as the parents sign off on it, then it's okay. See, but that still isn't getting to the root. What did God say? That's the root. Hath God said? Is the question being asked? And it's a idolatrous line of questioning. It's very little to no different than when in the book of Daniel, the edict is handed out that no one is allowed to pray to anyone but the king for 30 days, or that when the bell chimes, everyone has to stop and bow down and worship the golden statue of the king. This is no different at its root, because the common thread is the claim of higher authority being made by the state or its agent. These parents should have read the fine print because the claim has been for quite some time that man determines, man decides, we take a vote, we look at what would be the most progressive thing, and we do that. And by virtue of it being progressive, the morality will change over time, only it won't progress. It will not evolve past what God says is right and wrong. It will actually devolve into more and more lawlessness. And all of our scientific pursuits will be to the end of justifying our own immorality or trying to compensate for our own immorality and its consequences, natural and otherwise. So get your kids out. Abandon ship. They're not listening. They won't listen. Or if you won't do that, as you continue on, you have to understand everything that has ever been done when a nation's paradigm is self-directed, self-sourced, self-centered, man-centered. Everything that's been done in all of history is on the table for what may be done to your children. If your child decides to transition because they talked your child into being a girl, they might make your son into a eunuch. And I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I mean that literally. They might make him into a eunuch in a spiritual sense, in an emotional and mental sense. I think they're well underway in that project. But they might make him literally, physically, in a traditional historical sense, a eunuch. And then tune you out and turn off your microphone when you object, when you complain, when you say, you can't do this. They're going to say, like Louis XIV, I am the state. I do what I want. Everything horrific, hellish, nightmarish from the 20th century that happened in totalitarian states 
in the name of progress under Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. It is all on the table going down this road. That doesn't mean it will all happen just the way that it happened in those countries, but it has no reason not to happen given the presuppositions if that's what progress so-called demands. First, it's rhetoric. Then they go for sexuality. Then it turns violent. Or you can get your kids out and homeschool them or send them to a good Christian school, a good private school. But the public education option, that is not, that is not tenable. But moving on, speaking of violence, speaking of it potentially turning violent, I will give to you a tale of two cities after a fashion. (laughs) Annie Oakley over at Not The Bee has this post. Great news. It is now legal to carry a gun without a permit in fully half of the United States after Alabama joins the party. That is to say, constitutional carry, as it's known, is legal according to state law in half of the United States. You do not need to go and get a concealed concealed carry weapons permit. You don't have to. The Second Amendment is your concealed carry weapons permit according to half the states in the U.S. That's a good thing. That is positive. That is as it should be. That's a restoration of order. That's not revolutionary. That's a very conservative outcome, and I applaud it. By contrast, some reporting by Joseph McKinnon over at theblaze.com, January 11th, in an article titled, We're Gonna Make Felons Out of Taxpayers, Illinois Bans Semi-Automatic Rifles That Carry Over 10 Rounds. Another report from The Blaze from Carlos Garcia, Sheriffs across Illinois are refusing to enforce state's gun ban, and the Democratic governor responds with a threat, of course. And what must they do in the face of that threat? They must obey the higher authority. When that's God, you obey God rather than men. When you've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, then you obey the Constitution. And that's not revolution. Again, that is a restoration of order. That is the system of checks and balances which our government was very intentionally designed to contain and to run dependent on. Without it, we will get every dysfunction, every abuse, every kind of corruption that people have had throughout history. Abandoning the principles as a really excellent podcast I was listening to yesterday and this morning from Stephen Meyer and Douglas Murray and Tom Holland, considering the question of does God exist, Peter Robinson moderating or trying to moderate their discussion, doing his best. A really great podcast episode covering that. Uh, Explored, among other things, what happens to the fruits of Christian worldview, Christian morality, Christian ethics, Christian commitments to truth and to justice, to right and to wrong, what happens when those are cut off from how our governments are operating, functioning, how our academies, how our schools, how our laboratories, how our corporations are operating, how our families and homes are composed, and on what basis do we run moving forward if we don't 
believe that God exists, or if he exists, we don't believe that he's necessarily the Christian God, or if he is the Christian God, we have a very distorted view of grace and his grace, or truth and consequences in relation to him. We have a very distorted view, a very twisted view. What happens? As they describe, it's like cutting off the roots of a tree. It may stand for a while. It might look alive for a time, but you've killed it, whether you see that or not, just yet. In time, you will. In time, when the wind picks up, that tree is going to fall over, and you don't want to be under it, and you don't want to be up in it. That's their conclusion. And as Stephen Meyer says, I totally agree with, he's author of Return of the God Hypothesis, among other works, including Dawkins' Delusion. But as he makes clear, increasingly scientific evidence supports the assertion that God did create the heavens and the earth. And so increasingly, the atheistic rejection of God's authority rests not on a lack of scientific evidence, but on a desire to evade accountability to God for our moral conduct. That comes into play in every facet, from how our children are being sexualized, groomed, molested, mutilated, neglected, abused, to whether you being able to defend yourself against the same is respected, protected, upheld. Another article from the Daily Wire, this one from Amanda Harding, January 10th. Eternals actor said Hollywood won't cast non-white people as bad guys despite his desire to play a villain. Kumail Nanjiani has stated that he would like to be a villain in a movie. He'd like to be cast as a villain. He thinks that would be fun or he's got some ideas and he's been told by studios or by his agents who go and approach studios that Hollywood is not going to cast people of color as villains. They're only casting white people as villains. I kid you not. You, you can't make this up. Now, why? Why? Why would this be? Because supposedly this advances social justice. Supposedly only casting white people as the villains will correct our biases that only people of color can be villains, I guess, supposedly, even though there have been white actors playing villains since there have been movies. And there are definitely people of color who are represented as heroes, left, right, and center. Nevertheless, it's not enough. It won't be enough until we're all equal, until everyone has the same amount of wealth and power and prestige and honor. And what do you call that? I think that's communism, by the way. I think that's communism. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's communism. <laughs> At the end of the day, we come back to, and we can't escape, the debate over how do we know what is right and good? And inversely, how do we know what is wrong or bad or evil? Another fascinating comment made in this podcast episode, the name of the podcast is Uncommon Knowledge, by the way, it's put out by the Hoover Institution. But another interesting thing, interesting is too weak of a word, 
Another fascinating thing that they observe in the course of their discussion is that World War II has forever changed our view of the world. And the world hasn't changed. Let's be clear. Seasons come and go, weather changes, the climate goes through variations and cycles and it oscillates, but the world hasn't changed. When we say that the world was changed, the world will never be the same with the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's really meant, what really should be understood there is that our understanding of the world has forever changed because of that. That's why we have BC and we have AD. But they say a similar thing has happened since World War II. Before World War II, the question was, what would Jesus do? And Christian or not, not even just people in the West, everyone grappled with that question. What would Jesus do? In part because Christian civilization, Western civilization, played such an outsized role around the world through colonization and exploration and trade and military activity. But since World War II, the question has changed to, what would Hitler do? You know, before we were asking the question, what would Jesus do? And let's do that. Or at least we'll recognize, we'll admit that that is right, even if we don't want to do it. That that's what is right. And everything is judged and measured as a deviation or adherence to what Jesus would do. Since World War II, the question is, what would Hitler do? That's how we know what is evil. And instead of Satan, we associate anybody we regard as morally corrupt, we associate them with Hitler, or we call them Nazis. There's a German poem, Death Fugue. It reads as follows, as written by Paul Salon. Black milk of daybreak, we drink it at evening. We drink it at midday, and morning we drink it at night. We drink and we drink. We shovel a grave in the air. There you won't lie too cramped. A man lives in the house. He plays with his vipers. He writes. He writes when it grows dark to Germany. Your golden hair, Margareta. He writes it and steps out of doors. And the stars are all sparkling. He whistles his hounds to come close. He whistles his Jews into rows. Has them shovel a grave in the ground. He commands us to play up for the dance. Black milk of daybreak. We drink you at night. We drink you at morning and midday. We drink you at evening. We drink and we drink. A man lives in the house. He plays with his vipers. He writes, he writes, when it grows dark to Germany, your golden hair, Margareta, your ashen hair, Shulamith, we shovel a grave in the air. There you won't lie too cramped. He shouts, jab the earth deeper, you lot. There you others sing up and play. He grabs for the rod in his belt. He swings it. His eyes are so blue. Jab your spades deeper, you lot. There you others play on for the dancing. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink you at midday and morning. We drink you at evening. We drink and we drink. A man lives in the house, your golden hair, Margareta. Your ashen hair, Shulamith, he plays his vipers. He shouts, play death more sweetly. This death is a master from Germany. He shouts, scrape your strings darker. You'll rise then as smoke to the sky. You'll have a grave then in the clouds. There you won't lie too cramped. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink you at midday. Death is a master from Germany. We drink you at evening and morning. We drink and we drink. This death is a master from Germany. His eye, it is blue. He shoots you with shot made of lead. Shoots you level and true. A man lives in the house, your golden hair, Marguerite. 
He looses his hounds on us, grants us a grave in the air. He plays with his vipers and daydreams. Death is a master from Germany. Your golden hair, Margareta. Your ashen hair, Schulimith. And this is wild stuff. This is very wild stuff. And I don't mean to upset you, and I don't mean to disturb you. I'm not trying to be rude. To bring this to mind in relation to A Tale of Two Cities and whether the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall be infringed or not. I don't mean to bring this up with regards to chat GPT for no reason or the Idaho, Idaho school board. But this is morality, that we would know whether these things are right or wrong, or good or evil. I would say we need God desperately, not just to know, but to know and to do accordingly to trust in him, to not be deceived, to know the truth, and to be set free by the truth. We only get that from God in Christ. And if it's too terrible for us to reckon with right and wrong when we know we've done wrong and we haven't done right, there again, this is why we have to have Christ. Another thing that they talk about in the Uncommon Knowledge podcast episode, does God exist? Christianity has a concept of grace and forgiveness. And even when atrocities were performed and committed by supposedly Christian nations, Christian monarchs, Christian princes, Christian soldiers, we know that they are atrocities based on Christian morality. As in, when they were atrocities, it was not because They were too much Christianity, but because they were a deviation from the standard, from the principle, from what God said is good to do and what is evil to do, what he said thou shalt and thou shalt not about. But even there, we miss something if we can get that far, but no farther. We miss something. We lose something. If there's no grace, if there's no redemption, if there's no atonement, if there's no salvation, then we are just dead in our trespasses. We are condemned. And we see that too. Right now, we see the libertine side beginning to give way. I would not trust a government that will turn off my microphone or censor me online to then also take away my firearms. Because if I am still speaking, if I am still talking apart from my social media account or having a microphone at a school board meeting that I don't go to for obvious reasons. And this is why we homeschool, by the way, again. But the same government that would turn off my microphone or yours or shadow ban us is also a government which, based on its premises, would throw us into a fiery furnace when we don't bow down to the golden statue of the king or would throw us to lions when we're in the way and you can't take back the moral claim you made about right and wrong and what is going to be punished by death if you deviate. We desperately need God to have life and life more abundantly, to have peace, to see and to hear and to understand and to be free. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.